We're continuing our teaching series uh, within this pattern journey that we're on. Uh, the focus in this module is on materialism. And if you missed last week's talk, you must, must, must go and watch it. It was exceptional. Owen uh, really mapped out what it means to be truly materialistic given the kingdom of God, that matter matters. Everything matters. And therefore, how we handle the physical resources of this life are really, really important. And I want to talk today about stewarding our resources. But first, let me take you back just a few years to my 30th birthday. Uh, we were living in New Zealand at the time. Uh, we helped plant a church out there. And uh, for my birthday, we invited six friends to come over for dinner. Earlier that week, uh, a member of the church had given me a very, very nice bottle of new wine, uh, new wine, New Zealand wine, red wine, new wine's on my brain at the moment, and, uh, which was very kind of him. And uh, just as we were about to start our main course, I cracked open this bottle of wine, and the room went quiet. There was like this shock around the table from our friends uh, who said, you do realize that that bottle of wine is like one of the finest reds you can get. I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. And, and they said, so, so what are you doing sharing it with us? You need to keep it for a special occasion and just you and Kath drink it at some other time. To which I said, guys, there's more joy for me in drinking it tonight with my friends to celebrate my birthday than keeping it for some time which we may never get to. And so we shared it out, and we all got sort of probably not quite a full glass each, but we talked about that bottle of wine for years. It, I can still sort of, in my mind, taste it. It was exquisite, but part of what made it so wonderful was that we were sharing it with friends, and it created a moment of joy, a moment of blessing, of just sensing and tasting something of the lavish goodness of God and his intention for creation. If you know anything about the scriptures uh, around wine, you'll know that it's symbolic of shalom, this wholeness and flourishing of God. That's why Jesus turns water into wine, partly to symbolize that the new wine of the kingdom, this shalom blessing, is once again flowing through him because of what he is about. And so um, that is a little mental image for me always of God's goodness. And it reminds me of a story we find in the Gospels. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you might want to turn to Luke chapter 7. We're not going to spend long in here. We're going to come to another passage in a moment. But Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through to 50, tell the story of a woman, almost certainly a prostitute, who walks in uninvited to a dinner party that Jesus is having at Simon the Pharisee's house. Now, I learned as I was preparing this that in those days, people didn't have front doors. You just kind of were able to walk in and out of people's sort of... Um, public hospitality space. And so she turns up uninvited. That's, first of all, pretty unusual for a woman to do that. But then, uh, and women weren't invited to those kind of meals in those days. And, and then what she does is outrageous in those days, in, in terms of all the social norms. She, not only does she break into a dinner party, but she then sits at Jesus' feet and she weeps. And as she weeps, she lets down her hair, which would have been a kind of cue normally for her to say, hey men, I'm open for business as a prostitute. So a kind of very sexual, suggestive move and uses her hair to wash his feet. 
And then she cracks open this alabaster jar of the most exquisite perfume. She's probably spent all of her money on this, and she anoints him. She says, you are God. Pharisee Simon is outraged. This little meal he's having, we think possibly was, he was kind of wondering whether maybe Jesus was a prophet, but this whole interaction confirms for Simon probably that Jesus can't be who he says he is because he wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior. But actually, if you know the story, quite the opposite is what happens. Jesus affirms this woman. It turns out she's weeping because she's encountered the grace of God, something we talked about right at the very beginning of the year. And she's come to worship Jesus. She's come to pour out her offering to him. She washes clean his feet from the dust from the road and his sandals, which Simon should have done. And then she makes this moment of kind of worship public. You, Jesus, are the God who forgives. So Jesus, far from condemning her, far from challenging her, actually affirms her, points to her and says, yes, and then has quite a lot to say to Simon the Pharisee, who should have washed his feet for him, who should have done some of these other things. He doesn't anoint him as the guest. In other words, Jesus says, this woman gets it. And so she pours out all that she is and all that she has before him, because that is her response to everything he's given to her. We'll come back to that at the end. Last week, as I said, Owen talked about the fact that everything matters, that matter matters. Our vocation has been restored to us in Christ as those made in the image of God. Our vocation is to work with God to fill the earth with his goodness. It's to join in the renewal of all things. That's what God is doing in and through the church. That's the mission that we're part of. And so how we steward our resources is hugely important. This story of a woman giving uh, worship like she does isn't the logical place to start to talk about things like stewarding resources, is it? But I want to suggest it's this picture that perhaps would be good for us to have in our minds of the kind of response to everything we've been given that we're meant to make with all that we have to God, to be generous, outrageously generous, and to be committed to the kingdom of God with all that we have, all in, whatever the cost. Stewarding our resources, you see, isn't actually just about being careful and prudent and wise for us. The invitation of the kingdom of God, the invitation of the scriptures is to steward our resources for the sake of the world, for the sake of other people, for the sake of the mission of God. It's to live in such a way that actually together we collectively do something about the issues of injustice in our day. Racial injustice, slavery, the climate emergency. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. They're all so important. Notice that we're not using language today like giving. There's a place for a really straight talk about financial giving. Jesus has a lot to say about that But actually, what we want to do is put financial giving in a bigger context and say, actually, giving financially is an expression of godly stewardship of our resources unto the kingdom of God. The language of giving can all too easily imply getting and then giving. And if we're giving, then we're keeping. But actually, the invitation of the gospel is to say, it's all gift. It's all gift. 
And so the question is, how do I use what I've been given by God's grace for the sake of the kingdom of God? Jesus is very clear. He will meet our needs. We don't need to worry about that if we go for the things of the kingdom. We may not get our wants, but that's not what we signed up for. And so the posture has to be, God, these gifts you've given me, my spiritual gifts, my natural abilities, my intelligence, my passions, my skills, the opportunities I've had, the degrees I have, or the degrees I don't have, all the skills that you have, all the things you're good at, that you, your time, the money in your bank, your home, your car, everything, it's a gift of grace. Only you has your unique set of those things, which God wants to use in partnership with his spirit to do extraordinary things. Only you can do what you can do. That's why every single person in the kingdom of God gets to play. And the question is, God, how? If this is all gift, how do I gift it back to you? And when we say this, there are two things that probably go through our minds. Number one, but, but hang on, what about me? And as I've said, the gospel's really clear. This isn't primarily for ourselves. The gifts we have aren't primarily for us. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing, first and foremost. Now, in the process, he says, if you go for that, you too will be blessed. If you lay down your life for me, you will find it. If you give it all up, you'll get more. So there is blessing in being a blessing. And so we might find ourselves thinking, but I've earned this. I deserve this. And, and to think like that is to miss something of the freedom that comes from just being all in to God. The second thing it means is that actually everything we do matters. Our choices, day in, day out, with our resources, really matter. Positive or negatively, they make a difference in the world for other people. And so, friends, what we're saying is, will you, will I, will we pursue a life of, uh, in the kingdom of God over and above and ex uh, at the expense of a life of personal gain? It's so interesting to me uh, that the research that's been done around what the researchers call optimal contentment suggests that actually the, there's a point beyond which... Um, more money does not equal more happiness. The, the research says that if you, once you earn more than £75,000 a year, there's a diminishing return on levels of happiness. Now, I know most of us don't earn £75,000 a year. I, I get that. So I'm not suggesting you know, that, hey, we're all there. But I'm saying that because some of us might think, well, when I get more, I'll be more. But actually, the research says, no. You're at your most kind of optimum when you actually have less than you think you perhaps need. So, what do the scriptures have to say about how we steward our finite but often extensive resources? Well, they have a lot to say, particularly the parables. We're going to look at Matthew 25 in just one moment. Do open it up, uh, Matthew chapter 25. Before that, here's a quote from a theologian, Craig Blomberg, he says that the parables always contain a spiritual dimension relating to Christian discipleship, 
forgiveness, salvation by grace and the like, as the primary foci of God's kingdom or dynamic reign. Notice this, though. This discipleship will inevitably produce a tangible impact in the area of stewardship of material possessions. We're not waiting to go to heaven when we die somewhere in the sky. The work begins now in response to grace unto the, be- the blessing of the world and the reordering of creation for human flourishing. So Matthew 25. In the NLT, which is my favorite translation, it's titled The Story of the Three Servants. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a trip. He called together his servants and gave them money to invest for him while he was gone. He gave five bags of gold to one, two bags of gold to another, and one bag of gold to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities and then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of gold began immediately to invest the money and soon doubled it. The servant with two bags of gold also went right to work and doubled the money. But the servant who received the one bag of gold dug a hole in the ground and hid the uh, the master's money for safekeeping. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of gold said, Sir, you gave me five bags of gold to invest and I've doubled the amount. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Next came the servant who had received the two bags of gold with the report, Sir, you gave me two bags of gold to invest and I have doubled the amount. When you see something twice in the scriptures, Jesus is like, this really matters, okay? So this is why there's a repetition here. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the warm bag of gold came and said, sir, I know you are a hard man. Harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth and here it is. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. You think I'm a hard man, do you? Harvesting crops I didn't plant and gathering crops I didn't cultivate. Well, you should at least have put my money into the bank so I could have some interest. Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of gold. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who are unfaithful, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't worry about the last couple of verses. That's classic Jesus provocation language. We can easily uh, assume too much literally from that kind of stuff. That's to miss the point of the parable. The most common understanding of this parable uh, is that this is an exhortation to us as the people of God to use our God-given gifts, all that resource we've been given to further the kingdom of God. And notice to take risks with it, to invest it, in the kingdom of God, which seems risky because you don't know what the return will be because the return side is down to the Holy Spirit, not us. But when we sow in faith, in obedience, God can do extraordinary things. The, The language there is fruit, and you only have to go through the New Testament to see all sorts of extraordinary kind of kingdom economics at play. You know, the little boy with his packed lunch that feeds thousands? Like, that's how it works in the kingdom of God. And investing in the kingdom is what here is being rewarded by the master. Now, a couple of things to note. The property entrusted to the three servants is is worth what they would call eight talents. 
uh, hence the bags of gold. Uh, and a talent was roughly 15 years of labor for those servants. In other words, a lot of money. The kingdom is packed full of resource. There's infinite resource. There's more than you can ever know what to do with. That's the point. The master here, I would suggest, is Jesus. And he returns home after a long absence, understood classically to be a reference to him going to heaven at his ascension and then his return at the end of time to complete the kingdom of God, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth and for the judgment of Christ that will take place as part of that. The master, Jesus, asks the servants for an account. What have you done with what I entrusted to you? How have you invested it into the things of the kingdom so that it would grow, so that there would be more of it? Now, the first two, as we see, do that. They put their talents to work. There's growth, there's fruit, and they're blessed and affirmed for it. The third, who notice he's afraid of the master, doesn't do that. And Jesus is uh, cross with him. The master is cross with him to say, that's not how it works. Now, there's all sorts we could unpack around that. A couple of things to note. This is not what we might sometimes think, like some kind of heavenly examination that's coming at the end of our lives, where if we can't kind of convince Jesus that we did well enough, we're not in to heaven when we die. That's not what is going on here. Yes, you and I will all stand before God in judgment, but the judgment will not be, are you in or are you out? Are you really with me or not? Should I save you or not? That's not how it works. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. The question will be, what did you do with what you knew and what did you do with what I gave you to do things for me with? That's what we will have to give an account for. Tom Wright, who's extraordinary on this passage, puts it like this. He says, the whole of Jesus' ministry should make us protest against such a view of Christianity, the gospel of God himself. Jesus declared they'd come to call them not the righteous, but sinners. He'd come, he said, to seek and to save the lost. He warned the scribes and Pharisees that the tax collectors and prostitutes would be going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of them. Note Simon the Pharisee and the woman who invites herself to dinner. In other words, this is not a performance test. This is not what's going on here, but we are nonetheless faced with a question. It's the classic invitation and challenge of Jesus, the discipleship invitation and challenge combo. If we're going to pattern our lives after Jesus, we have to respond to this invitation and face the challenge. Because we are in Christ and always will be, because he has redeemed and restored to us our true identity as the imago Dei, the image bearers in creation. Through grace, we have been recommissioned to partner with God. And to give our whole lives to that is the invitation. Will you fully, in faith, for love, serve my vision? The question is, yes or no? And then, what did you do with what you had? What did you do with what you need? The challenge is twofold. It's hard. It requires listening to the Spirit day in, day out, being attentive, being trusting, obedient. It requires us engaging with, with God on, on all of these things. God, give me wisdom. What should I do with this and this and this and in this opportunity? And how do I know? Intimacy with the Father. Jesus only does what he sees the Father do. It's the same for us. But it's also a challenge because the world calls us, does it not, constantly 
actually to embrace a different story. Not the story of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of me. So what's the choice? Will we lean in with all we have and invest and give to this great redemption project? There are two aims for that, and we're going to unpack this uh, as the rest of the module uh, opens up. And uh, we're going to put stuff into the resource notes that we're creating for life groups and individually around how you can respond to everything I've said already. And watch out for that tomorrow on our website. But there are two aims here for God. Number one is the justice aim. Step one in all of what he's trying to do is bring justice. It's working to level up, not a north-south divide, but a global injustice divide, a holy kingdom of God leveling up, ensuring that everyone has enough. And you and I, as the people of God, should be at the forefront of that work, tackling social inequality, locally, nationally, globally, tackling the symptoms of that, but also the causes of it, getting into the systems and structures that cause and perpetuate injustice and inequality. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at consumption. Jack Wakefield from Tear Fund, who's now part of our community, is going to be speaking about the climate emergency. And then Kath is going to be helping us think about how, whether we realize it or not, we can often be complicit in global systems of injustice. What can we do to change that? This has implications for how we live, what we do with our resources, which we'll put into the notes. The second aim, real quick, is shalom. Having achieved some form of justice, God is not just content with that. Actually, what God wants is the whole world to discover who he truly is and what he had in mind right from the very beginning. The kingdom and vision is to go beyond social justice to all creation alive and flourishing. It's a land flowing, we're told, with milk and honey. That's what cultural renewal is all about. But you and I gifting our very best to, to make sure we have the best possible education, politics, arts, industry, medicine, science, you name it. So that the whole world sings. And God can make his dwelling there with us forever. And so this has implications for what we work towards and how we do our jobs, whatever they are, whether you're paid or not. All of this, as I close, brings us back to sharing the best wine with your friends, to pouring out the very best of all you have in surrender to Jesus, whatever the social cost. The goal here is not to give just something to the bigger picture and think, tick, I've played my part. It's to pour ourselves out in worship and service to God and his kingdom, not counting the cost but trusting that he works with our best offerings. A final thing to say is some of us will think, I don't have very much to offer. Well, throughout the scriptures, what you find is what's affirmed is not how much you give, but how freely and lavishly and generously you give. It's about an open hand. This is gift. Here it is, Jesus. I give you all I have. Do the rest. Let's pray. You might like to just be still for a moment if that's possible. Depends what's going on at home. Maybe close your eyes. Maybe open your hands. 
Opening our hands sometimes reminds us that, yeah, we have to be open-handed, not only with what's in them already, but also if we're to receive anything afresh from God. Everything you have in your life is a gift. And it's a gift that you're called to use to bless and to resource the kingdom. So it might be, just as the Spirit of God ministers to you, there are things you need to lay down and there are things you need to pick up and just come before God and say, show me again how this works for me. Pour out your spirit, we pray, God. Pour out your spirit upon us.